Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, it is good to be with you all this morning. I'm thankful for the privilege to open God's Word together as we look at uh, what Paul's message was for his readers back in the day in which he wrote it and what we can learn as a body uh, from that. Uh, so as you're turning uh, in your copy of God's Word uh, to Romans 2, we're going to start in verse 17. As you're turning there, I want to just open us in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that Christ gave his life for us. Even though he did not deserve to die and we did not deserve to be saved, he gave his life for us. Father, I pray that as we, we look into your word this morning, that you would, um, would pierce our heart with the truth of the gospel, that you would, would help us to understand, to, to wrestle with what Paul is saying here, and that it wouldn't just be something that goes in one ear and out the other, but it would be something that, that we take and apply to our life as we, as we think about what you have done. I pray that as we do that, Lord, that Christ would be magnified in our life and in how we reach out to others and those around us. I pray for this time this morning, Lord, use it for your honor and your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So some of you may know about me, um, how I got to this point, um, but I don't know for sure if I've ever shared with all of you my testimony of how I came to be saved, and I, th I think it fits well with where we're going today. So I wanted to share that with you as, as we get started this morning. And now, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my my great-grandparents were believers. My grandparents were believers. My parents were believers. Uh, my dad, I was actually born while he was in seminary uh, to be a pastor. I was uh, So I, I grew up in, in a Christian home. I grew up in, in part of a Christian legacy, if you will. Of, of people who, were, who God had chosen, who were faithful in following God. And because of that, I was in church just about any time the doors were open. We don't have a lot of events going on at Reach Life, but the churches that I grew up had literally like three to four things on weekdays that you could go to. My parents, because they were on staff, we were at all of those. So there was, there was Sunday school, there was, there was an Awana program, there was a, another separate program from Awana for kids as well that met throughout the week. And so I was at church a lot. I also would show up early. My dad would help get things set up. Um, whatever you know he was doing, usually I would be there with him. Um, I, I think it's because I was helpful, but might have been because I was a troublemaker if I didn't stay, if I stayed at home. So whatever the reason, I was at church a lot. And because of that, I had a very, very good knowledge, although I was, I was very young when I was saved. Um, I, was, I was about five years old when I was saved. I had a very good knowledge of who God was, what he had done. I knew all these cool Bible stories. I knew about the donkey that talked. I knew about, about all, all these different fun things that, that you could know as, as a four or five-year-old. Um, and I, I prided myself on my knowledge that I had. I, I liked being the one that had all the answers. Eventually, as I, as I grew older, I would be the one that would, would, in a sword drill where we had to find Bible verses, I would always be the first one uh, done. And so I, I had a lot of pride in, in that knowledge. I felt like I knew who God was. And my parents would tell me later that they spent a lot of time praying that, that God would use something to get through to me. Because I had a lot of head knowledge, 
but it wasn't connecting with my heart. And by God's grace, one night when my brother and I were fighting, he's two years younger than me, so we fought a lot. There wasn't anything particularly special or extreme about this fight, but God used that to get through to me. And the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and saw, helped me see that I needed a savior because without Jesus, I knew this is a little bit of a morbid thought for a five-year-old, but if I were to die that night, I knew I would be going to hell. I wouldn't be going to heaven with Jesus. And so I went and talked to my parents and said, hey, I want to be saved. And so they, my dad sat me down, talked with me, uh, made sure I understood what I, I was, was saying, made sure that it you know, was something that I, just, I didn't just think was the right thing to do, but that, that God um, was, was calling me. And so um, from there, God has, has done a lot in my, in my life to get me to this point. But I think back on that day, and I think it, it, there, there, it wasn't the knowledge that I had. It wasn't anything about, you know, I, I didn't just finally really, you know, make sense of what God had done. The Holy Spirit had, had to convict me of my sin. And so where we're going today is about the gospel is also for religious people. Okay, you think about, about how this can connect to us. Not all of us maybe come from the background that I did. You might not have been raised in a Christian home, but maybe you were. Maybe, maybe you come from a, a non-religious background, or maybe you come from a very religious background like I did. But the point that I want us to see today is that the gospel is not just for horrible, rotten sinners. It's for horrible, horrible, rotten sinners who pretend that they're not horrible, rotten sinners. It's for non-religious people. It's what we've been seeing up to this point. But it's also for religious people. All that knowledge that I had as a child couldn't save me. And it wouldn't save me. And so we're going to be looking in, in this passage today at a people group called the Jews. These were a people who were, were selected by God. They were God's special chosen people. They enjoyed a lot of privileges based on that. You can read the Old Testament and understand some of, of who they were about how God didn't choose them because they were anything special. In fact, you can read scripture and think they're anything but special. But we're going to see today about how they, like me as a child, could have been tempted to rely on their knowledge, on, on their, their, their lineage even of who their family was and what their family was about and how that's not enough to save a person. So we're going to get into Paul's message of both warning, but also it's going to be a message of hope for, for those of us, uh, especially who come from this type of background, that, that we all need God. The gospel is for all of us. So let's, I want to read through uh, the passage here together, and you can follow along as I read, and then we'll go through, as I like to do, and kind of break it up into sections, look at some things, and then draw out some points for ourselves of how, how we need to respond to this message. So let's pick up in verse 17 as we read uh, along here. We'll go to chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what value is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be judged in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So in the beginning of this passage, in verses 17 through through 24, Paul's looking at what the Jew is boasting in. And he looks at them as a whole. He's not necessarily talking about one specific person or saying that every single person does this. But he's saying collectively as a whole, here are some things that he starts off that a Jew boasts about or prides themselves in. First of all, a Jew boasts in their nationality. He says that, that you call yourself a Jew. They believe that everyone was destined for God's judgment except for the Jews. Now, the problem with this is that, that they felt that, that they were going to get a free pass, not because of any special grace from God, but just because they had the title of being a Jew, just because basically of who their parents were. And so they, they prided themselves in that. They thought, we're really special because I'm a Jew. It wasn't about God so great because of what he's done, but I'm a Jew, so I, I get a free pass. Everyone else is going to be judged. Another thing that they boasted on was having and knowing the law. The Jew didn't understand fully what what the law meant. He didn't see the law as condemning him, but he saw it as as a signal mark of God's favor to him. He saw it as, this is something that God has, has given me. I have it. I've received it. I know what it says. And so this is something I'm going to boast in. He didn't see it as something that actually pointed out in how many areas he came short of what God demanded. The Jew also boasted in their special relationship to God. Verse 17 says that they boast in God. And now this meaning here is is not necessarily a vain boasting, but a legitimate pride that the Jew had. They did enjoy a special relationship with God. The problem is, is that they're holding that up as something that saves them. The Jew thought that, that he was, was super tight with God and he boasted about it because he thought nobody else is. It, it's me and God. I, I have a special relationship with God that nobody else can enjoy. The Jew also prided himself in knowing God's will and applying it to decision-making. 
Paul says that the Jew, he legitimately does know God's law. And as Terry touched on last week, knowing God's law and having that is both a privilege, but it also holds them doubly accountable. There, there is, and leads to severe condemnation if, if they fail to follow it, because they know what to do. They can't say, no one ever told me. They, they know, they have God's law. And not only that, they, they apply it to decision-making. But the Jew takes this privilege and, and he, he goes beyond just using the law the way God intended. He, and he basically sets himself up as the person who gets to tell other people what's right and what's wrong. You can see how this doesn't lead to, to any kind of, of righteous behavior, but actually arrogance and pride in saying that, that they are the one who can let people know what's really good and what's really bad. Paul also says that the Jews boast in the fact that they've mastered the law. They don't just have it. They don't just understand it. They view themselves as the foremost authority on the law. You want to know what it says? You want to know what it means? You come to them. And lastly, they see themselves as a guide to the blind. And so while it's certainly true from Scripture that that the Jews were supposed to do this, it's all about the attitude, right? Paul is is saying here that that this truth is supposed to be shared about who God is from an attitude of humility, not from a, I am so great, I can tell you what to do because because I, I I am your light, I am your guide. There's a difference between the Jews' attitude of, of seeing themselves as, as something so great and Paul's attitude elsewhere in letters that he writes of saying that he is the foremost of all sinners and that he's the least of all the apostles. Paul wants the Jew to remember that if it wasn't for God, they would still be in the dark. If it wasn't for God's grace. This wasn't meant to lead to an exclusive relationship with God in which the Jew holds everyone else at arm's length and says, you can't be a part of what God's doing. It was meant to lead to humble missions work as the Jew understood that God has given him a divine task to to share the light with others, not from a standpoint of pride, but from humility saying, I want other people to see the light as God has opened my eyes. And the problem with this list of things that the Jew prided himself in is that it's all based on on judging himself against others, right? We can see this, especially in being a guide to the Gentiles or or being the one who really understands and knows God's law. This, and Tim Keller argues, and I would agree with him, is, is something we could call moralism. And Tim Keller writes, he says, moralism is extremely common and always has been. It's the biggest religion of the world today. It's the religion of people who compare themselves with others, who notice that they are a lot more decent than other people, and conclude, if there's a God, he'll certainly accept me. I'm a good person. How many people have you interacted with that have have said something along those lines? I know I've heard multiple times that idea. And this is basically what the Jew is saying is that, you know, compared to other people, I have a special relationship with God. I know the law. I apply it to decisions. I'm supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. So based on that, I'm doing a lot better than other people. So how could God not save me? How could God possibly judge me? And so to this point up in verse 20, every Jew that's hearing these words would be nodding going, yes, yes, Paul, preach it. You really get what being one of us is all about. This is exactly what we're talking about. And yet Paul hits them with a twist. Verse 21, he says, you then who teach others, do you not 
teach yourself. So while the Jew gloried in his privileged position, he, he overlooked the fact that, that the same sin that he was pointing out in others, he was committing himself. And Paul asks a series now of rhetorical questions, and these aren't necessarily meant to be answered by his listeners, but are meant to point to the Jew that, that he is doing the exact behavior that he instructs others to do. It, it talks about here preaching against stealing, asking, so don't you steal? About committing adultery, don't you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And Paul's point here is not necessarily, again, that every single Jew is doing this or that all of the Jews are out robbing temples or committing adultery every Friday night. But Paul's point here is that when, when these sins are properly understood from Scripture, coveting, lusting, idolatry, all mankind are guilty of these three. You remember back when we talked about uh, the Ten Commandments series about how, how easy it was to walk in on those Sundays and feel like, yeah, I don't do this, and to walk out going, ooh, I do this a lot more than I thought. The same idea here is that, that Paul is wanting them to understand that if you understand sin properly and how Jesus teaches about it, think about in Matthew 5, all mankind are guilty of, of these sins that Paul is bringing up. And so he's saying, your privileged position is doing nothing for you. You're still engaging in sin just like the lawless Gentiles are doing. And it's important for us to remember here that Paul's not writing this just to hate on the Jews. He was one himself. Elsewhere in scripture, it, it, it talks about him having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them. And that his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Paul's motivation is for the Jew to see his sin, to, to repent of it, and to find in, in, in the gospel the hope that God provides. Not for the Jew to, to leave thinking, I'm doing all right. So it's important for us to remember that. Paul, his, his motivation is not that he wants them to leave thinking they're so great, but he also doesn't want them to leave thinking there's no hope for you. And Paul talks about here in, in uh, verse 23, talking about how those who, who are boasting in the law, the Jews are dishonoring God by breaking the law and saying that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. And we see here that the hypocritical lifestyle of the Jews did the very opposite of what they were hoping. Rather than drawing people to God and being a guide to the blind, they dishonored God, causing the Gentiles to blaspheme his name. Think about how often this happens in our church culture today. Tim Keller comments, he says, This is a convicting principle. A life of religious legalism is always distasteful to those outside the faith. A moralist will be smug. They're good people. Oversensitive. Their goodness is their righteousness, so must not be undermined. Judgmental. They need to find others worse than them in order to be good and anxious. Have they done enough? Who wants to be around that? I would even contend that to add to that, that, that people even within the faith find that kind of lifestyle distasteful. And if, if you're up to date on, on any amount of people who are, are publicly leaving the church um, and, and, and citing their reasons for it, a lot of them, you'll notice, have something along those lines in there. Church is full of hypocrites. 
there, somebody, there are people one way on Sunday, another way throughout the week. Uh, a popular example of, of, a, uh, of two YouTube uh, influencers that I have uh, personally enjoyed their content that they've put out, uh, not necessarily an endorsement for any of it, but just um, uh, somebody that I've enjoyed is, is Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning. If you aren't familiar with it, it's a great show. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but they came from a, a Christian background. They were, were raised in the church, grew up like many of us did, and walked away from their faith. And there, there are many th- parts of, of, of the reason for why they, they did that, but a big thing that they highlighted was the hypocrisy of the believers that they were around, the people who claimed to know Christ. This is what the Jews were doing in their day, and this is what I think we see happening a lot in the church today, where the hypocrisy of, of people who claim to know Christ, who should be acting a certain way, who should be full of grace, are not. And that's off-putting to others. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that we're causing people to walk away from their faith, but we are not helping if we live our lives one way throughout the week and we are not showing God to be who he is. We're not reflecting his glory when we live this lifestyle of hypocrisy, of saying one thing, calling out sin in other people, but not being willing to repent of it ourselves. And so this impact that the Jews were having was exactly the opposite of what they hoped to see. It was not what they wanted to happen. Paul is pointing out that, that because they're relying on themselves and, and who God has, has made them to be and given them that privileged position, they are actually turning people away from God rather than being the light that they hope to be. And so Paul here, he, he goes a little deeper then into a, a ceremony for the Jews that was very special to them, that they held in very high esteem. It's no longer just teaching and the way they lived their life, but a, a special ceremony that to them would be held very, very tightly about circumcision. And he draws a distinction here between the inner heart of man and the outward appearance. He argues that circumcision that the Jews practice, it only was advantageous if they follow the law entirely. James 2.10 says that if we break the law in even one point, it makes us guilty or accountable for it all. So circumcision for the Jew was, it was a sign of God's covenant to them. Therefore, it was extremely important and valuable for them. But Paul's saying it doesn't matter what they look like on the outside, what the ceremony, whether the ceremony had happened or not, it was about whether their hearts were right with God. It has no value if their hearts are not right. And as I thought about this, the difference between outward appearance and inward reality, I thought of a time back when I was in college and my gram would send me gifts, like care packages, if you will. And they would be wrapped up, usually in some Trader Joe's bag, wrapped inside out so that it would just be brown paper. Uh, they would have my, my address on it, my college address, all of that. I would open it up, and I would find a box of Skechers shoes. And usually, yeah, something like that, okay? That's not what you want to get. You don't want to get size 8 Skechers shoes that, that really aren't your style at college. And so the outside of the box didn't look that great. But inside the box, I don't know if you guys know what these are, since you're from down south or not. I don't even know if they have them here. But these things are amazing. So there's a company up in the Philadelphia area called Tasty Cake. And my parents grew up in Philly. We were raised on these things. This is my personal favorite, the coffee cake one. Um, but it would be full of all types of, of these Tasty Cakes. There's all different types. And there would be usually a note from her. 
and it would it would make up for the outward appearance of the box. I didn't really care what the box looks like as long as there were tasty cakes inside. Now imagine if it was the opposite. If my grandma accidentally mixed up which box is supposed to be which, and she sent me a box of tasty cakes with size eight pink sketcher shoes in them. What would my reaction be to that? I'd probably be pretty bummed out, right? I would not have the same amount of joy and enthusiasm when opening a box to see, wow, look at what's inside if it was something that, that for me had no value. And so this is kind of getting at what, what Paul is saying here, that, that it doesn't, the Jews were focusing so much on what does the outside of the box look like? Does it, does it look good? Is it, is it showing people like, what would they want to, you know, do they like it? Does it market well? Is it on brand? And God's saying it matters so much more what's on the inside of that box inside of your heart than it does what the outside looks like. And Paul is actually arguing that it, it is better if the outside of the box looks not on brand, looks rough, looks like something you wouldn't want to be around if the inside heart or the inside contents are right. And so Paul is, is encouraging the Jew to stop thinking so much about how they look to others and start thinking about how their heart is in its relationship with God. And, and Paul here, he, he goes through a lot of different things in these verses. Not all of them will have time fully to, to touch on, but his main point is that he's arguing about is that um, being a Jew, he argues, is not just about who your parents were or, or whether you've been, been circumcised and follow all of those instructions. Paul argues that being a Jew, is the essence of it is about an inward reality of the heart. Paul wants them to, to note that perfect obedience is what God requires, not religious privilege. And it's important for us to remember, neither of those is possible. You, your religious privilege can't save you, but neither, neither can we engage in perfect obedience. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus that a person can please God and live in right relationship with him. And as Paul says in verse 29, this is a work of the Spirit. This can only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. You heard me mention in my testimony at the beginning that the Spirit convicted me of my sin. Prior to that point, that religious privilege of growing up in a Christian family, at a pastor's family, all that knowledge could not save me. Nor could perfect obedience be a path that I could take because, as I mentioned, I was sinning, fighting with my brother. It was a daily occurrence. Thomas Constable writes, Even though the Jews had the advantages of receiving the Mosaic Law, and the covenant of circumcision, their arrogance and fruitlessness offset these advantages. Even divinely revealed religion is no substitute for trust and obedience towards God. That part I, I had underlined there, it really is, is an interesting quote to think about. That even something that God gave to his people is no, as, as something for them to, to follow, something for them to do, is no substitute for trusting and obeying in God. That is what God truly desires, and that is what Paul argues 
makes somebody part of the family of God, of the people of God, is whether they, they obey God and trust in him. And so, so Paul, to this point, has kind of beaten down the Jews. He's, it, it'd be easy for, for a Jewish listener to feel like, man, what's the point? And, you know, if you're saying it's, you know, being a Jew is not about all these things that I've thought it was, and, and, and all of this means nothing because I'm a sinner and I need God's grace, then, then what's the point? What's the point of being a Jew? And so he goes into, in chapter 3, sort of a, a question and answer time, where he is going to be addressing some, some of these concerns and some objections from his listeners. So the first question that Paul asks as posing as somebody else, says, well, what's the point of being a Jew? Paul's answer, there's a great advantage to being a Jew. Jews have been entrusted with God's word. After these verses, we might expect, and the Jewish listeners might expect Paul to say, there is no advantage. And so he says quite the opposite. It says the Jews, they, they have that special privilege of being entrusted with God's word, However, some of them have lacked a proper response to God's grace and mercy in their lives and have not taken this truth to the world around them. So Paul's not saying that it's pointless to be a Jew, that, that God is just done with the Jews. We believe that, that they will have a special part in his plan in the future. But there are some who, who, who didn't follow, um, God's great, follow what God uh, told them to do and didn't respond to his grace and mercy. So Paul's not saying that it's pointless, but he is saying that religious people need the gospel. Question number two that Paul raises is, well, well doesn't the fact that the Jews, are, that doesn't the unfaithfulness of the Jews cancel out God's faithfulness to them? Back in those times, you made a covenant, you made a promise. If one party broke it, it was done. But God's covenant to his people was, was not based on their obedience. God made a covenant with them based on his character, that he will always be true and trustworthy and reliable. And so Paul's answer to this question is no. In fact, God's faithfulness and his truthfulness are actually shown to be greater in light of the unfaithfulness and lies or hypocrisy of the Jews. God's grace is shown to be great because of how he deals with their sin. And this quote that um, is in here that, that, that Paul quotes from is from Psalm 51. It's a psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, confessing to God and, and, and understanding that, that God is shown to be, be just in how he deals with punishment and how he deals with, with grace. Paul says here to, to let God be true even though everyone were a liar. The statement, it points us back to, to the quality of God's character. He can be trusted. He's completely reliable. He follows through on his promises. And by contrast, every man proves to be a liar. We are all hypocritical at times. We all break promises. We say we'll do what's right and we fail to do so. And so God will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will not also disregard his promise to the nation of Israel. But he's not going to save them just because they're Jews. So what Paul wants them to understand is that they need the gospel. They need what Christ did for them. 
They can't rely on their religious heritage or their following ceremonies. And so God has proved to be truthful in keeping his promises to the nation of Israel, but also staying true to his character in in needing to, to punish sin, to not let it go unpunished. So then a question that follows here that Paul brings up is that if the unrighteousness of the Jews actually reveals God's greatness, doesn't that make it fair, unfair for him to punish us? Essentially what this is saying is that if God benefits in some way from our sin, then it's not fair for him to punish us if he's getting something out of it. And Paul says that this is absolutely not the right view of God or of our sin. He says, absolutely not, is his answer to this question. God is only righteous if he punishes sin, not if he allows it to continue. The truth of the gospel is that if there was no sin, there would be no need for the gospel, nor would there be a way for us to know so well what God's righteousness means. So in our sin, God is merciful, is shown to be merciful because of how he deals with it. But it does not advance his purpose in some way that he is unjust for punishing it. God views sin as as completely unacceptable and cannot tolerate it. So God's not benefiting from our sin, Paul's saying. God could not bring real wrath without punishing somebody, so this punishment has to be real. But if none are punished, then it's it's not judgment. So God is shown to be, be righteous in how he deals with that sin. Question number four that, that Paul brings up is, is why am I being condemned as a sinner if God is glorified in how he deals with sin? Question 4.2, shouldn't I just keep sinning so that God's grace looks even greater? Paul's response is, some people have accused me of saying this, but they are so wrong. In fact, This sinful attitude is worthy of judgment from God. So Paul Paul here, he's concerned with a false idea that mankind should not be held accountable for their sins because it, it serves a purpose to show how good God is. This view contrasts with what Scripture clearly says about God's sin. Paul says, says later in Romans 6 23 that the wages of sin is death. You can also read in chapter one about how God views sin and what the punishment is going to be. So a huge emphasis for for Paul, as we're going to see, um, especially next week, is that salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus. It's not about works so that no man can boast. And this this, this teaching has always led to some people wrongly thinking that, well, I can do whatever I want. If God's grace is sufficient, if, if he's going to cover that, it's not about what I'm doing, then why not just keep sinning so that God's grace just abounds? Paul gets into that in uh, Romans chapter 6. And Paul, Paul strikes back and says, you know, those of you who are saying that, you don't get it. You're not getting about what Christ has done for you. You are not understanding how your sin is viewed in light of a holy God. And for those of you who continue to, to live that way, you're, there is going to be condemnation for you. There, you are going to be justly condemned if you continue to live a life of gluttonous sin without remorse. And so we end here kind of on a, on a cliffhanger to next week. 
where, where we have seen that for the Jews, they need the gospel. And, and next week, we're going to look at what Christ did and, and the, his righteousness and how, how we can be saved. Paul's going to get into that. He's going to explain it in depth. It's going to be great. But for us, we're left with an impression and understanding that, especially for those of us who grew up in, in religious homes, who grew up in Christian homes, if you've been relying on that to this point, that's not enough to save you. It's not enough. And so some questions then for us to consider, for all of us, those of us from non-religious backgrounds, those of us from religious backgrounds, some questions to consider. First of all, do you need the gospel? Do we need the gospel? Paul would say yes, and I would say yes. Even the Jews who had had so many advantages, had a head start on others, Paul says they need the gospel. All of that means nothing without the gospel. Second question for us to consider. Do you preach the gospel to others? Hopefully we could say yes. I'm sure a lot of us could say we could do a lot better job. We, like the Jews, we've been tasked with being a light to the world. So some questions we should ask under this are, are we being a light? Would anybody see that light? Are we being a humble light that realizes that, that we too were once in the dark? If not for the grace of God, we would not be here today. Are we preaching the gospel to each other when we come to our gatherings on Sunday? Is there grace for one another? Is there truth? Is there love? Does what Christ did for us impact the way we interact with each other on a Sunday morning or at an MC? Third question, do you preach the gospel to yourself? Again, hopefully the answer is yes. But also hopefully the answer is, I could do more. I could do better. How does what Christ did for you affect your daily life? Do you hear the words preached on a Sunday? Think of you know, I know someone who really needs to hear this message. Send it to them and then go about your Sunday afternoon, watch football, take a nap, whatever you do, and it doesn't affect you. Or do you hear it, feel convicted by it, think, yeah, I got to make some change, and then next Sunday rolls around and, and you've done nothing. A point that a very wise man who happens to be on staff made this week says that you're either listening to yourself or preaching to yourself, right? You're either listening or you are talking to yourself. And by that, what I mean is if you're not t preaching truth to yourself, there's going to be a lot of other things that, that creep in. A lot of other voices, your voice in your head is going to tell you that there are things that are more important, things that matter more, and so on and so forth. So do you preach the gospel to yourself? And lastly, does your outside reflect your inside? Are you a different person on Sundays versus at work or at home or out when you're shopping? Are you more worried like the Jews were about keeping up appearances? Or are you more worried about growing in your walk with God? And is your walk leading people to God or turning them off from him? 
These are all great questions to think about. These are questions that I'm wrestling with, that I am thinking about. They're questions that are challenging. But hopefully, as we look at these questions, we understand that the gospel is not just for people who aren't saved. The gospel is not just for your unsaved coworker. It's also for you who have accepted it, who understand, who know what it's about. And it's something that, that we as believers need to, to be reminding ourselves about, preaching it to ourselves, preaching it to others, and remembering that, that if it weren't for the grace of God, we would still be in the dark. So I hope that as, as we've looked at this today, that, that you leave not convicted about something, not willing to do something about it, but that we all leave wanting to grow in, in our walk with God, wanting to, to reach others with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you have given us this morning. I thank you for the message of hope that even though we can do nothing of our own, you made a way for us to be saved through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for, for those who are here today. Lord, for those of us who have, have accepted the gospel, who have been transformed by it, I pray that you would help us not to forget that not to, to forget our need of the gospel in our life, of, of what you have done for us. I pray for those who are here today, Lord, who, who might not have accepted uh, the gospel, have not accepted Christ as their Savior. I pray that you uh, would continue to work in their heart, that they would wrestle with uh, the truth of, of your word, that they would come and talk to one of us, Lord, and, and make today the day that they accept you as their Savior. I pray that as we go... Uh, into our weeks, Father, that we would be a light to the world, a humble light, understanding that, that all we are is because of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.